Good morning. Hi. Well, my name is Nick Allen. I'm the family and children's pastor here, Rolling Hills. And it's a real honor to get to come in here, um, especially on a day like today, um, in the middle of this particular series, under the guise of this particular heading and topic. Um, you see, I spend most of my Sundays um, with the elementary school ministry at Rolling Hills, full of fantastic leaders um, and a, just unbelievable adults, the middle school and high school students who serve in that area. Um, just incredible. Uh, and I love what we get to do to communicate the Word of God to kids every week. Um, but it's on occasion that I get to step into this role uh, of being the teaching pastor for the multi-generational body of Christ. Um, some of us younger and some of us older. Uh, and today... In the middle of a series on church works and what it takes for the church, the body of Christ, to really function in the world that we live in, um, what it means to stand before a people of God and say that it's about multi-generational ministry is, is really a blessing and an honor. I'm excited to be here today. Um, think of the job that you had when you were in high school. Maybe the first or whatever. I, I had a couple of jobs in high school. Um, bagging groceries at the Harris Teeter. That was a good one. I liked that a lot. Picking up the carts by the cart corral and wheeling them into the store. Um, but during the summer, I had a job as a lifeguard at a local swim club. Now, if you, believe it or not, yeah, I was a lifeguard. If you, um, if I was wearing red shorts and running in slow motion, you would all get the picture. Um, so I loved that job. It was great. I, I knew that getting it would help me do a couple of things. One, preserve my tan all summer long, and two, meet lots of girls, and that was maybe an objective. Uh, the extent of my lifeguarding, if this were true confessions, would be to tell you that it was really just to sit in a chair on the outside of the pool, soaking up the sun, and occasionally blowing a whistle and telling children to stop running. Um, I never had to make a rescue. I never had to put my skills into practice. There was one time when I had to close the pool because there was feces in it. Um, there was one time when a little kid who had maybe just a little bit of, of a speech impediment come up to me and say, um, Mr. Nick, there's a rat in the baby pool. And I said, a what? And I went over to the baby pool to realize that there was a rat in it, um, a dead one. It was drowned in the filter. And so I did what any um, OSHA-trained health conscience high schooler would do. Um, I scooped it out with a net, flicked it in the woods, and let everybody go swimming again. Uh, <laughs> that was really the, I never had to jump in after anybody flailing around and saying, help me, help me. I never had to use any of the rescue breathing skills that we had acquired for two weeks of intensive training at the Matthews Athletic Club in Charlotte, North Carolina. I never had to put any of that to use. You see, they taught you in that class a lot of whys, why you do things the way that you do, why the rules are what they are, and why you're supposed to have a pool that is maintained in this fashion. And they taught you a lot of the hows. Uh, how to jump in and save someone, how to secure and immobilize someone who might have... I mean, there's a lot of hows that go into lifeguarding. But I never had to use any of them. And see, there's a disconnect between any of the things that we learn, the why and the how, but we don't put into practice. Enter the Bible. Because the Bible is full of hows and whys. And it's up to you and I to put those things into practice. When you ask the Bible a why question and you get a how answer, you wind up really disconnected and claim that the Bible's insufficient and that it doesn't have the answers. When you ask the Bible a how question and you get a why answer, you can become disillusioned and think that it's irrelevant and that it doesn't matter in the world that we live in today. Both of those conclusions are inaccurate because the Bible gives us absolutely everything that we need just not always in the manner that we want. We're engaged in a study this month called Church Works. 
And it's how this body of Christ is intended to function according to God's word. And I'm, I'm thrilled to be in Titus chapter 2 with you today. Titus is typically associated with First and Second Timothy. Together, collectively, they form what's known as the pastoral epistles of the New Testament. Pastoral not because it paints for us a farm scene, but pastoral because it tells pastors, church leaders, elders, men and women, how they're supposed to engage the life of the church. It gives for us polity and policy and practices to be the body of Christ in our generation And we learn from the book of Titus what it means to engage leadership. We talked about that week one. Last week we talked about sound doctrine. The idea that we have common core beliefs that we must teach and that we also must protect when they're attacked. But then today we land on the idea of generations. It's how the story of faith is intended to be passed from one generation to the next. Titus 2 is unique in that it provides for us a lot of why and also a great deal of how. And we're going to start our look at the book of Titus by way of the Old Testament. So if you have one of those cool ribbons in your Bible, you can turn it to Titus 2 and save your place or use your worship guide as a bookmark and make your way back to the New Testament book of Deuteronomy. If you're joining us on one of your mobile devices today, then you should be able to find both of those passages at cyber speed. And then also, if you don't have something in front of you, words will appear on the screen so that you can follow along and see what it is that God's word says to us. Starting with the words from Deuteronomy chapter 6 beginning with verse 4. It says, listen, Israel. Okay, there it is, the header. That's the people of God. This is the family of Abraham that's been called together. They've been rescued from slavery in Egypt, and now they're wandering around in a wilderness, and God is giving them words that define them as a people. So he says, listen, Israel. That's like saying, listen, Allen family. This is who we are. He's calling them by name and saying, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We serve one God. You've just been rescued from a land where people worship lots of gods. Let's just talk about Yahweh. He's the one and only true God. And then it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I am giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And in this passage, much like the one that we'll dive into in Titus chapter 2, God is giving us a lot of whys and a lot of hows. We engage in the life of the why in Deuteronomy chapter 6 because it tells us that God is one. That's why. Anything else that you read in all of Scripture matters. Why? Because God is one. He's the one true God, the creator of the heavens and the earth and every part of this universe that we live in. Plus, he's the creator and sustainer and life giver of you and me. So if there's a why question ever to be asked in Scripture, it's this one. Jewish people call it the Shema. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's him and him only. So everything else as related to Scripture comes from that verse and that verse alone. There is one God. Listen up. That's a why. Why else were to love him? Everything else in scripture, Jesus was asked this question, what's the most important command? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, whole mind, and strength. Well, this is it right here. He's quoting the book of Deuteronomy. If we have to sum up everything in scripture, we're going to say that it's about us finding the ability in and of ourselves to love God in response to who he is. There's the overarching why of you and I being Christ followers. Why? Because he's God. Why? Because we love him. That's it. But then he gives us a lot of hows. And all of the hows are related to preserving the relationship with God that we have in our lives, but then also passing it on to the next generation. We are to keep his commands in our heart. That's a how. How are we to love him and show that he's God? Keep his commands. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I say. Deuteronomy 6.6, how we keep his commands in our hearts. 
how we repeat them to our kids, it's essential that we pass the faith that we found in Christ on to the next generation. And then it tells us where we're supposed to repeat it, when we're lying down, when we're sitting up, when we leave the house, when we're on the way. This is a recipe for passing faith. And then it says, wear his words in our lives. Put them as a symbol on your hands and tie them up on your foreheads. Wear this word wherever you go because incidentally you and I are to be the physical representation of Jesus Christ to the world. They're supposed to look at us and see the practices and the worship and the love relationship that we have with God. Wear it well and put it on your homes, over your doorposts and on the gates where people enter and where people exit so that the first thing that they see and the last thing that they see is that this is a house and this is a place where people love the one true God. We get the why, and we get the how. The New Testament community is the same. You see that group of people in in the book of Deuteronomy? It wasn't just a word for moms and dads. It was to the entire community of faith. The mikra, the whole assembly of God. The entire group of Israel, moms and dads and also not moms and dads. It was for everyone. You see, as a community, they bore the responsibility of passing faith on to the next generation. It wasn't just the responsibility of the mom or dad. It was the entire community of faith that bore the responsibility of ensuring that the generation that came after we no longer existed knew God and loved God and kept his commands. And you fast forward to the New Testament, to the book of Titus chapter 2, and we get a recipe that's very similar, where God is saying to a group of people, this is how you conduct yourself. This is how you live. This is how you persevere and that you preserve the word of God so that the next generation who comes after you also knows that I'm one and that you're supposed to love me. This new generation of believers didn't just include kids that were being born into a family of faith. You see, now God's family had been expanded to include Gentiles, people from neighboring lands, people that weren't born Jewish by blood, but now people that had been grafted into the family of faith, people that weren't raised memorizing the book of Deuteronomy by the time that they were age 13, people that didn't know who this God was and what this word says, but they responded to faith in Jesus Christ. And so they needed to be taught what it meant to follow him. It's a multi-generational ministry because it's full of multi-generational people and they're passing faith from one person to the next so that we can know God and so that we can love him. You have your Bibles now turned to Titus 2 and on the outset of this, I want to say that we have a ministry here that highlights this well. It's mom to mom. Does anybody want to give a shout out for mom to mom? Oh, look, all the women in the room. Yes, solidarity, okay. Mom to Mom has been around Rolling Hills for longer than I have. Um, It's a ministry that began really near the beginning for, drumroll, moms, you know, uh, for women to be mentored. And and the system of Mom to Mom and the way that it's set up is that there are Titus II women, hence the book of the Bible that we're in today, who invest their lives in other moms. And so rather than hear from me, not a mom, I, I thought that today we could invite one of the Titus two moms to come up here and share a little bit about her story with mom to mom with you. So Charlotte Keeney, you guys say welcome. I feel like a talk show host. Welcome Charlotte Keeney. And now I'm going to sit on the chair because that's what talk show hosts do. So thank you. It's fun. Thanks for coming and doing this. She already thank did this once me. this morning at the 930. So she's <laughs> professional and I'm going to, I've changed my questions up. Oh, no. No, I'm no, just kidding. <laughs> can I come back next week? <laughs> no. Yeah, well, maybe. I don't know. I'm not here. I'm in the kids. You can come in there with the oh, elementary school okay. kids. Okay. <laughs> so just really quickly for, for all of us in here, what is um, a Titus II woman in mom-to-mom? Like roles and responsibilities. What do you do? 
Well, first off, um, Mom to Mom is a ministry here at Rolling Hills for moms, and it is for women who come to mothering in lots of different ways, whether that's through biologically having a child or fostering a child or adopting a child. Um, for moms at any stage, you can be pregnant with your first or parenting teenagers. Um, and we come together and we're broken into smaller groups and each group has a Titus II mom, which is kind of the leader of the group, um, the group facilitator. And we have a mom-to-mom -mom curriculum that we work through. It's video-based and it has discussion questions. We also have Bible studies um, and we have book studies that are available. And the Titus II mom is really, she's just a mom that's a little further down the parenting road. Um, not that I have all the answers, because I don't, but, you know, I've got some experience. Um, and I'm just there to really support, whether that be, you know, helping with a meal or praying with you or sharing scripture with you, but just providing a safe place to come and talk about what it is to be a woman of God, a wife and a mother in our homes. That's great. You are kind of young to be a Titus II mom, you think? <laughs> Maybe. That's fun. Well... <laughs> we'll see. All right. So what is it that you hope to impart or invest in the lives of the women that are in your group? Wow. Um, being a mom is an amazing privilege that God has given us. Mm -hmm. And it is hard. <laughs> it is hard. And I want to help women know that God has equipped us. He has given us the skills and the tools that we need to do the best job that we can do. Um, and I want to help provide a safe place to come and talk about what it means to be a woman, a wife, and a mother to the kids that God has put in our lives um, and to our husbands and just the community that we're in, um, to have a place to talk about that. Um, That's great. Yeah, you're in a unique position because um, you've been on both sides of the equation as a, mm -hmm. a mom who was participating in Mom to Mom, mm -hmm. but then also as a Titus II mom. Mm -hmm. Who have been the Titus II moms in your life, and what did they um, provide for you? Well, first off, I have to say my mom. Um, my parents brought me to know Christ as a young child, and then I walked away. Um, I was not walking with Christ um, as a teenager and young adult. And then I met Ben and we got married and I came back to Christ. Um, but even that time that I was not walking with him, he was walking with me. There were women in my life that were sharing his good news. They were praying for me. They were supporting me. They were encouraging me. Um, and then Ben and I got married. We started to have a family. We moved overseas and I was taken away from everything I knew from the church that I had come back to Christ in, um, from my own family, for all fr from all my friends, and God provided women. Um, he put women in my life to help with things as basic as, you know, folding laundry, providing a meal, helping with childcare, to really being there for me to grow spiritually, to pour into me God's light and God's love. So as a, a Titus II mom, mm -hmm. um, who's leading in a ministry mm -hmm. here, but then also just as a wife and mother yourself, mm -hmm. what, what does Titus II say to you? Wow. Can I back up just a bit? Yeah, absolutely. I forgot to mention one of my most important Titus II women. Okay. Um, when Ben and I came to Rolling Hills, we moved to Franklin about eight and a half years ago, and the very first community group I was in, Lee and Sandria Keck were in. Yeah. 
And Sandria became my mom away from mom. Um, she was always there with the encouraging word, with the hug, with the just whatever it was that I needed. And she's the one that invited me to mom to mom. Gotcha. Um, and so she's the reason that I started in with um, this ministry and just gave me the opportunity to benefit from the wisdom of so many women. There have been so many women that have poured into me. Um, and then she asked me to be a Titus II mom, and that gave me the opportunity to just live out what the book of Titus II calls me to do, and that is to share Christ with other women and that we can all share Christ with the next generation. Um, coming together as a group of believers to just share his love with our kids. Um, and that's everybody's kids. That's the collective community. We are to do this as a community. I know. I'm really thankful for that community. I, I mean, I don't... I am too. Susan and I, absolutely. <laughs> Susan and I talk often about even just the moments that we've faced in life that have been hard. We can't imagine what it's like mm -hmm. to go through any of that without faith and without people of faith surrounding you. Mm -hmm. So I know mom to mom is that for a lot of women in the life of our church. And so thank you as you represent you. a lot of Titus II moms for what you do and how you invest. Thank so, you. Thanks, Charlotte. Appreciate that. Thank you, guys. That's right. So uh, as you gleaned by Charlotte, older can really mean um, younger too. So <laughs> Titus II uh, gives us the, the why and the how of growing our faith in the context of community. You know, that's what it was in Deuteronomy. The, the, the why and the how of passing faith onto the next generation in the context of Christian community. And Titus, as it speaks to the local church, is no different. And so we start today um, engaging these words from the book of Titus. Um, and just verse by verse, there's a lot of blanks in your worship guide. If you want to engage that and fill it out, great. If not, that's okay. You can follow along and points will be on your screen. But Titus walks us through some whys of our faith and some hows of our faith in a really important manner. And so here we go, Titus chapter 2. It says, but you must speak what is consistent with sound teaching. Okay, this is the thesis of really not just this chapter, but of the whole book of Titus, that we are to live lives that are consistent with what Scripture says. The word sound is found in the New Testament nine times. It's uh, the word huga ahano, which is a fun one. And it, what it really means is spiritual healthy. So we want the things that we do to be regarding spiritual health. We want the things that we do to be free from any mix of error. Five of the nine times that it's found in the New Testament are in the book of Titus. And each time it talks about spiritually healthy and spiritually right. And we want to be consistent with what's healthy and right and good about this book. We want to understand that spiritual truth produces spiritual health. Even when that truth is hard. Even when that truth is not quite palatable to us, even when that truth is not preferable to us in the manner in which we live, in the community that we come from, even when that word is hard, we want to be consistent with what God's word says. And so there's the thesis. And then it's kind of summed up by a lot of whys and a lot of hows throughout the passage. The first one comes from verse 2. It says, Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible and sound in faith, love and endurance. So older here can mean older. When Paul used this same word about himself, he was over 60. And so the fact that he was calling himself an older man in his faith at this moment. But it can also mean people who are just mature in their walks with God. 
People who were mature in faith, people whose experience had led them to the point where they were able to invest in the lives of other people. And and so it goes on to say the same thing about women. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not addicted to too much wine. They are to teach what is good. So we have this passage of scripture that identifies people that are older and mature in faith. And it describes for us the example that they're to set for the rest of us. This is a a how statement. How in the world do we make sure that what we speak is, is consistent with sound teaching? Older, mature believers get to set the example for us. That's a how. It goes on in verse 4 to say these words, so they may encourage young women to love their husbands and to love their children. Well, there's a why statement. Why must we be consistent with sound teaching? Oh, well, because we want to love well. We want to live out our love relationships well. And it was addressed specifically to an audience of women, but it encompassed the whole body of the community of faith to say we want to love well. Older, mature believers get to set an example for us of what it's like to live a life that's consistent with sound doctrine so that the product for us is that we would learn how to love well. And then in verse 5 it says, to be self-controlled, pure, homemakers, kind, and submissive to their husbands so that God's message will not be slandered so that they will be self-controlled. That's a hard one. You see, I know a little something about self-control. Not, whatever. A couple of weeks ago, I got back from the New Orleans mission trip with, and I took my oldest two kids, my daughters, Lily, Kate, and Nora Blake, their first grade in kindergarten. And we've been to New Orleans on this mission trip multiple times before, and as kids tend to do, as they get comfortable with a setting and an experience and an environment, they tend to step a little bit too close to the line that we've drawn in the sand for them. And my oldest was really struggling with this a lot throughout the week. And so I just kept saying to her, Lily, Kate, what are the fruits of the Spirit? And she would say, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What was that last one? Self-control. Do that better. And she would say, okay, daddy, because we knew that self-control was an issue that she was struggling with. The moment would just sweep her away and she was too excited and too hyper and too, and she would get swept away into something that she knew she probably wouldn't be doing, but that's okay because she was, no, self-control. And sometimes I sit back there in the sea of children and I wonder, as a kid's pastor who's engaged a culture of raising up the next generation for Christ, why in the world does it seem that Kids are struggling with self-control, and I can only look back in the mirror and point it at myself and say, because they're raised by adults who are struggling with self-control. And why do we have kids that are acting on impulses? Because they're being raised by adults who are acting on impulses. And I read a great deal about an entitlement generation that we're supposedly fostering, but I think to myself, the real root of it is that they're being raised by a very entitled generation who don't necessarily understand the fruit of self-control in our lives. And Titus writes to the church and says, or Paul writes to Titus in the church and says, to be self-controlled. And so we know that that's a why. So that we will live temperate lives. And it's accompanied by another why from verse 6. We're at the end of verse 5, so that God's message will not be slandered in the same way encourage men to be self-controlled in everything. Why? So that God's word will not be slandered. So that God's word won't be rejected. I'm convinced as we sit around the landscape of religion in our world, we understand that the reason why Christ is being rejected by so many is because Christ's people are not living lives worthy of Christ. And the truth of the matter is that people aren't respecting, rejecting the message of Jesus. 
They're rejecting the message of so-called Jesus followers. And Paul writes to Titus that you must speak what is consistent with sound doctrine and set a really good example for other believers so that we'll live temperate lives and so that God's word will not be rejected. Verse 7, it says, Make yourselves an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that the opponent will be ashamed, having nothing bad to say about us. There's a why in there. It addresses the recurring theme that when people reject Jesus, they're really rejecting his followers. And it's so that no one can object to our beliefs. So that when people look at us, when people see the way that we're living our lives consistent with sound teaching and setting an example for others in faith and in love and endurance and being people who set a good example of good works with integrity and dignity and the things that we do and the things that we say and the ways that we live, people won't be able to argue against the belief that we hold in Jesus. And so how do we rectify that where it's gone wrong? Well, he gives us a remedy in verse 9, and it's a big moment in Scripture because he starts with slaves. He addresses a body of people who are everywhere in Rome because when they conquered a neighboring land, the people in effect were not Roman citizens. They just became slaves to the politic and even slaves to slave masters. And he says, slaves are to be submissive to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. There's a how in there. It's to learn the humble art of submission. Now, everything that I learned about being a servant, I learned from Downton Abbey and Mr. Carson and Mrs. Patmore. No, really the word slave in scripture is doulos, and it means servant. It means devoted to another to the disregard of one's own self-interests. It's a slave, a servant, or an attendant. Nowhere in the New Testament does it condone slavery as a practice. But Paul is speaking to a body of people that literally exist in his day, and he's saying, even you, in the midst of your dire circumstances, can represent God and represent him well. And he encourages their willing submission to authority, not as a measure of their weakness, but as a sign of their strength and credibility before God. How in the world are they supposed to do that? They're going to learn the humble art of submission so that they can demonstrate their faith under fire. I can't imagine a more tumultuous life than being a slave before somebody who was a mean master. And if you can demonstrate faith in God and integrity before God in that kind of dark circumstance, then that's going to make God's word attractive to others. Why must we demonstrate faith under fire? So that God's word may be found attractive, so that it can be adorned, so that it can be decorated, so that it can be made beautiful in the eyes. How many of you stood before a mirror this morning? I did. We all did. Brushing our teeth and fixing our hair and making sure that our shirt fit right. And we're looking in the mirror, examining ourselves, trying to figure out whether or not the pants are too tight. But what we're really supposed to be doing is looking into the heart and lives of our soul to say, am I representing God well? Because when I look at the mirror and I focus on my pants, I'm trying to figure out what's going to make me attractive to others. But when I look in the mirror and I focus on my soul, I'm figuring out what's going to make God attractive to others. And are there things that I do and say and an activity that I can engage and a person that I can become that will make his word attractive so that other people might know him? Sometimes we're so concerned with our appearance and not enough concerned with his appearance. So that God's word may be attractive to others. So that people will look at the way that we live and like him more. 
because of it. It says in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared. Some of your translations say grace incarnate, and that's because the grace of God that's appearing is the literal person of Jesus Christ. He has appeared with salvation for all people. He has come. He has lived. He's been perfect. He did a lot of miracles. He recruited quite a band of followers. He died on the cross, was resurrected a couple of days later. We'll celebrate that this year at Easter. We really celebrate that every single day as redeemed believers in Jesus Christ. And we'll celebrate that moment because when he came back, he went up, and he's going to come back one day to prepare a place for us. In fact, that's what it goes on to say. Instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust and to live in sensible, righteous, and godly way to the present age while we wait for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. He's coming back. And Paul reminds Titus and Paul reminds the church that the reason why you live these godly lives, the reason why you must produce what is consistent with sound teaching and right, healthy, spiritual doctrine is because this Christ that you represent, that you want to make attractive to other people in the world, He's coming back one day. He's going to appear again. And when he does, you want to be found that way. In verse 12, we know that we're supposed to resist temptation and to choose holiness. Because he's coming back. In verse 14, so that we can live redeemed lives well. It says, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a special people eager to do good works. These people, these ones for God's own possession, they're special. Not because of what they've done or what they can do, but because of whom they believe. They believe in Jesus. It's the same word for people that Peter used when he calls us a royal priesthood, a chosen nation, a people for God's own possession. It's believers, believers in Jesus Christ, followers of the way. It's the same word that Matthew used in the gospel when Gabriel came and spoke to Joseph and said that Jesus would save people from their sin. Who's he going to save? Believers. People who trust him. People who follow him. These are the people of God. It's the community of faith. It's the ecclesia. That means church. It's the mikra. That means assembly of God. It's Israel. That's us. And we're sitting here today understanding that our deeds and our tasks that God prepared for us to do are in response to who he is. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that those good works have been prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that those good deeds are to enhance the body of Christ so that more people can know him and follow him. So that the next generation of people who believe in Jesus will understand how to follow Jesus. So much in the life of our church has been turned upside down specifically around the world because we're telling people a lot what it means to believe in Jesus but forgetting to tack on how to follow him. Titus 2 gives us the why and the how. And then he goes on to say his final words in Titus chapter 2, say these things and encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Everything that I've just said about sound teaching, all the whys, All the hows, setting a good example, denying temptation, choosing to live a life of holiness so that God's word can be attractive to others, so that it won't be rejected, so that we may live redeemed lives well. Do that, and don't let anybody disregard you. Abraham Lincoln, he said, in the end, it's not the years in your life that count, it's the life in your years. You know, Abraham Lincoln lost eight elections, failed at business twice, and had a nervous breakdown all before he became president. There's someone who had been disregarded quite a bit 
but did not lose sight of his mission. In the economy of Titus chapter 2, you and I find ourselves on both sides of the spectrum, the older and the younger. You see, we need to be the older men and women of Christ who are investing our lives in another generation, but we're also the younger men and women of Christ who need to be invested in by an older, more mature generation. We're older, it's like Benjamin Button, older and younger. And we're on a path for that. Vulnerability alert. I feel the weight of my role here, of being a family pastor, of executing children's ministry well, of leading a team that engages parents of birth all the way through high school to say, this is how we're going to raise another generation. I feel the weight of that responsibility. And I feel the weight of being a good pastor, but a great husband and a great father. I know what the church needs me to be in those regards. But I also know what I need the church to be in those regards. Because I can't be a good pastor or a great husband or a good dad without the ministry of other believers setting a good example for me. Prompting me to resist temptation and to choose holiness. Teaching and reminding me what it means to live a redeemed life well so that other people, including my own children, will adorn the word of God and believe in him. I know that I'm on the older end of the spectrum. But I'm also right there on the younger. I know what I need to be for the church. But I also know what the church needs to be for me. It's right here in Titus 2. And there's a lot of whys and hows in this passage. We know that from our notes, it's the church that's made up of all generations, united by truth, that we've been saved by Jesus, joined together as his church, and living a life on mission. We can find a lot of ways to sit by the pool and look really great understanding all the whys and all the hows of our mission in Jesus Christ. But until we get in the water and do what he says, we're not accomplishing the task. It's one thing to get the why of Jesus and the how of passing faith to the next generation in Christ. It's another thing to dive in and do something about it. And so at the end of Titus 2, in verse 15, when he proclaims, say this, encourage this, rebuke this, don't let anyone disregard you. It's a question for you and I to leave here today and to ask ourselves, what am I doing? Who am I becoming? How am I engaging to pass the message of Jesus Christ and my faith in his gospel on to the next generation and the next and the next after that. We cannot be a church of lifeguards who don't get wet or of people sitting on the sidelines of faith while an entire generation grows up 
we have to engage. It's a command we receive from Deuteronomy, and it's a recipe we get from the book of Titus of how we're supposed to do that well in our time and in our generation.